0: Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. We begin tonight with the crisis in many
1: long-term care homes in this country as they struggle to contain outbreaks of COVID-19. I'm asking everybody available, every health worker
2: to come forward and help us. In the fight against this virus is a test that will define our generation.
0: Roughly six million people have lost their jobs. We'll also be expanding the Canada Emergency Response Benefit to reach people who are earning some income. I feel a special affinity for the situation that is being faced by seniors right now. They see the reports of of deaths and illness in seniors homes in other parts of the country and it scares them and they're worried about that. They know the sense of isolation that they're experiencing. That was Manitoba Premier Brian Pallister. Across the country, the death toll continues to rise from coronavirus. Hardest hit have been our long-term care homes. COVID-19 has swept through facilities that provide care for seniors and the disabled, killing our most vulnerable fellow Canadians. Last week, Ontario Premier Doug Ford announced he was sending in the cavalry, COVID-19 SWAT teams, as the Premier called them, to help over 100 homes in Ontario deal with the outbreak. But is that enough? Joining me now is Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Donna, the Premier making that announcement that we were just discussing about sending SWAT teams in. What is the most critical need right now in long-term care facilities in Ontario?
1: Well, Mercedes, you know, this is this really is a tragedy. And and we identified from day one that the most pressing need we had was actually people. We, we need staff. We need employees. Uh, we were in a critical shortage, not just in Ontario, but across Canada uh, of PSW's personal support workers. And in order to have staff we have to have personal protective equipment Uh, we have to have uh, the face shields masks gowns and gloves Uh, we need tests uh, and uh, we need more people Uh, that really is the the greatest need right now if we're going to shore shore up our homes uh, keep out the uh, COVID virus in those homes uh, where it's not. And there, we have about 626 homes in Ontario with uh, just over 100 Im- impacted at this moment. So we've got to keep it out of there. Uh, and then where we have it, we have to contain it. So um, bringing in the cavalry is exactly what we need to do. We, we, we need to raise an army right now.
0: Donna, I think a lot of Canadians and people at home watching the show right now have parents or loved ones who've been in long-term care, and that staff shortage is no secret at facilities all across Canada. Why, when there was a pandemic clearly coming, do you think more was not done to get in front of this situation and to identify and find staff before it hit?
1: You know, I wish there was a simple answer to it. So, uh, our association in Ontario actually had struck an emergency uh, task force for human resources and we convened some meetings earlier in the year just trying to understand what are the solutions uh, and, and there aren't any easy solutions. We've looked at uh, measures that they've taken in Nova Scotia and out east uh, where they've actually renamed uh, personal support workers to healthcare aides, uh, thinking that it, just the rebranding might, might help deal with some of the this st- this stigma and make it more attractive. Uh, We know that this is actually a global problem. Uh, We hosted a a global conference in September where uh, our colleagues from the United States and the United Kingdom and Australia are up against exactly the same problem. Um, So it's, uh, you know, it has to be a multi-pronged approach. Uh, We need to find a way to attract people to come into long-term care. Uh, It's a very heavy care environment. And, And I have to say, I think one of our challenges is that Not everybody understands what long-term care is and who who our residents really are, despite the fact that so many of us have had family in long-term care or have family there now.
0: Why do you think it is, Donna, that long-term care facilities didn't lock down earlier? I mean, there are parts of the country uh, out east where they locked down much earlier than they did in Ontario, other countries where they locked down. And they have managed to keep the rate of COVID-19 much lower in these facilities where the most vulnerable people are. Why didn't your members make a decision to close the doors before they were told to do so by the government?
1: Well, unfortunately, the decision wasn't our members. Uh, The decision rested with government. So, especially in Ontario, we are heavily, heavily regulated. Uh, We started very early on requesting a a restrictive visitor uh, order from government. Uh, That took uh, longer, certainly, than we would have liked. There was a lot of tension, uh, quite honestly, between families who continue to want to have access to and to be able to visit with their loved ones, uh, and what we saw was coming in terms of a, a real need to receive restrict access we know that uh, this disease comes from the outside uh, and as difficult as it was it was the right decision but uh, it it did take longer.
0: One of the things that was being discussed was the drop in essentially inspections in Ontario of long-term care facilities do you think that standards dropped as a result of that?
1: Uh, Absolutely not. Uh, Our long-term care homes, especially in Ontario, we have a heavily regulated environment and we we actually uh, have annual inspections by our ministry. There are regular uh, incident critical incident reporting mechanisms where the government then follows up and investigates those. Uh, They investigate complaints on an ongoing basis. We also uh, have inspections from the Ministry of Labour, public health, both uh, provincially and municipally, as well as accreditation process and other reviews.
0: Donna, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Thank you very much Mercedes. take care The enormous economic long term risk of of simply by fiat shutting down uh, uh, sag projects in particular uh, could be devastating uh, to the province for years to come. And so our preference instead is to mitigate risk on the public health side with the measures that we are taking.
0: That was Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Alberta has been particularly hard hit by COVID-19, both in terms of the number of cases of coronavirus out there and the effect on the province's main source of revenue, oil and gas. Less than two months ago, Premier Jason Kenney introduced a budget that was based on oil Oil at 58 U.S. dollars a barrel. It projected that unemployment would go down and the deficit would be paid off in just two years. Instead, oil prices have plunged to as low as $3 a barrel and unemployment has skyrocketed. The premier has said that unemployment rate could go as high as 25%. What is next for the Alberta government? Joining me now from Edmonton is Alberta's Environment Minister and House Leader Jason Nixon. Welcome to the program, Minister.
2: Thanks for having me on, Mercedes.
0: Sir, on Friday, the Prime Minister announced there was going to be help for the oil and gas sector in the form of $1.7 billion to help with orphaned and abandoned well cleanup. Is that the help that you were looking for?
2: What we have been asking for help when it comes to orphan and abandoned wells, Uh, this is a a problem within the province of Alberta that we have been working diligently on, And we see as an opportunity going forward to be able to help uh, clean up uh, our our environmental obligation inside the province of Alberta, while at the same time creating work for people within the energy sector that are looking for work at this critical time. So we have been calling on the federal government to work with us on that. We're excited to see the number. The number is significant. It's going to create uh, over 5,000 jobs inside the province of Alberta at the exact moment that we need it. I think the important messaging though, on this Mercedes is the fact that this is not the end. Uh, and we, we here in Alberta need to make clear to our fellow countrymen across the country that the oil and gas industry, the energy industry, the largest industry in this province and this country is in trouble and this is a start, uh, but we are going to need more help for this industry to make sure that it survives, an industry that provides over 800,000 jobs across the country and provides uh, tax revenue and royalty revenue from coast to coast that provides the services that Canadians depend on. And so Alberta was there when we helped deal with things like the automobile sector when it was in trouble uh, in the last decade. And we really need the country to come alongside us and we need the federal government to stand with Alberta and make sure we can save this country's largest industry.
0: So what is your province asking for from the federal government?
2: Well, we're gonna have to continue to work on liquidity issues uh, during the COVID-19 portion of this emergency. Uh, We're gonna have to continue to make sure that we take care of the people that are losing uh, employment inside this province. And of course, all the provinces uh, across the country in the short term, and as we battle the pandemic, and that we make sure that our oil and gas companies and our energy companies are able to survive through that period, and then we have to work together to be able to come up with stimulus and opportunities to be able to make sure that the industry can survive and then thrive, and then ultimately continue its important role in the in Confederation.
0: What do you think the dollar price tag is on that liquidity to keep oil and gas afloat?
2: Well, you know, I don't think anybody knows 100% what the dollar value will be at this moment. Uh, we, we were very focused on getting immediate relief into the abandoned well portion uh, of this problem. We're happy to see the Prime Minister come alongside us today to, to accomplish that. That immediately gets over 5,000 people to work. Uh, But we have to continue to have long-term conversations both with the industry and with policymakers across uh, federally and provincially here in Alberta on the solutions that we can have to help make sure that the uh, companies survive and that the industry is able to go forward. I want to stress that we see this as a two-stage process and the immediate solutions need to be about keeping uh, viable companies that would be viable under normal circumstances, uh, but are struggling because of COVID uh, and the combined problem of the price war that's taking place within the energy industry uh, are able to survive and then be able to function and then ultimately be able to create wealth for this country at the other end of this crisis. That's the immediate focus. But following that, we have to begin to look at creative ways uh, to be able to create work within the energy industry and allow those companies to be able to to go back up to capacity and to continue to create jobs, ultimately tax wealth, uh, that is then shared across this country uh, and used for our social services systems, again, from coast to coast.
0: What would you like the federal government to do in terms of the Russian and Saudi governments? They've pulled back on the oil production that they were flooding the market with, but do you think that more needs to be done?
2: We're going to have to continue to do more. I mean, we've seen some positive signs in that area of in the last week or so, as you know, Mercedes. But it's not enough to solve the complete oversupply problem at the moment. Uh, and so we need to continue to uh, have open dialogue we appreciate the federal government uh, being with Alberta during those discussions and and communicating uh, the needs of the energy industry globally and that work needs to continue uh, and we need to have a level of urgency and that's the big message that I'm hoping uh, our fellow Canadians are hearing across the country today the level of urgency that is happening in the largest industry in this country Uh, we are in dire straits right now in that industry and we need to come together to figure out a way to make it survive Uh, because, again, our whole country depends on
0: it. It's no secret that there are environmental concerns among senior cabinet ministers, some of whom do not support the oil and gas industry. Do you believe that those internal cabinet politics are playing into part of the delay uh, in getting money out, and do you believe that could ultimately interfere with your ability to get the money you're asking for from the federal government?
2: Well, I'm concerned that those internal politics may be playing a role. I do want to then emphasize uh, that we are approaching this from an environmental perspective. I mean, one of the ways that we're trying to create stimulus within the system is to deal with uh, an environmental problem, and that is abandoned and orphan wells. I also want to emphasize to those cabinet ministers, if that is the lens that they're looking at this through, that they take the time to look at how many of their constituents, the people that sent them to Ottawa to represent them, will be impacted if Canada's largest industry does not survive or is not able to create the wealth that this country depends on. This is a critical crisis. This does not mean that we don't continue the important work that we're doing on environmental protection and climate change and other issues across this country, and including here in Alberta, but we have to understand that this is an industry that creates over 800,000 direct jobs, tens of billions of dollars of wealth all across this country and is essential to the very survival of confederation. This is not an Alberta issue, this is a Canadian issue and we need to come together and we're seeing signs of that with our our provincial counterparts and we need the federal government to understand how important this is, not just to, to the people in Alberta, but to the people from coast to coast.
0: Minister, we just have a few seconds left but I want to ask you about a letter that was sent from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers to the federal government asking them to suspend environmental regulations and suspend the implementation of new environmental regulations at this time. What's your reaction to that letter? Do you think that that's a reasonable ask to say that environmental uh, regulations should be suspended right now?
2: Well, I think that what the industry is asking for, certainly what Alberta is doing in regards to that, uh, is trying to limit some of the immediate paperwork issues associated with reporting and monitoring. Uh, but we are not making any decision that would stop monitoring from taking place in real time and our ability to understand what's taking place in the environment. We're monitoring our air and our water and our land and we're able to respond to emergencies. This does not stop us from uh, protecting the environment. But we do have a large industry that is facing COVID-19 with a major workforce, uh, and some of the reporting requirements are, are significant. And so requiring them to continue to monitor the environment, but being able to give a little bit of help on the administrative process in the short term seems entirely reasonable to me, and both the Minister of Energy and myself have done that in the province, and we do hope the federal government will help support that going forward.
0: So you don't think that that puts the environment at risk?
2: It does not need to take the environment or put the environment at risk. In fact, in our end, we have taken great steps to make sure, again, that we continue to monitor the environment, that the requirements for environmental protection remain in place. Uh, But we have provided some relief on reporting deadlines, on paperwork deadlines between us and industry and government, while still requiring them to meet their obligations underneath law.
0: We have to wrap it up there, but thank you for your time, Minister.
2: Thanks for having me on, Mercedes. We cannot be in a rush to get things going
0: again, because if we move too quickly to loosen all these controls, uh, everything we're doing now might have been for nothing. We'll find ourselves in another peak just as bad as this one or worse. The Prime Minister is calling for a slow approach to restarting the economy. Businesses across the country have been hard hit and are asking federal and provincial governments to cooperate, to come up with some sort of a coordinated plan that will get Canadians back to work when social distancing restrictions begin to lift, sector by sector and region by region. What should the plan look like and when should it swing into action. Joining me now to discuss this is Linda Hassenfratz, CEO of Linamar, an international manufacturing company based in Guelph, Ontario. Linda, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Now, you run an absolutely massive company. It is multi-billion dollars, second biggest auto parts manufacturer, I believe, in Canada. How has COVID-19 affected your company and your operations?
3: Well, clearly, we've been significantly affected. Uh, Most of our customers around the world are either shut down now or have been for the past several weeks, meaning that basically most of our facilities globally have been shut down for weeks as well. Uh, we are shifting into recovery mode, and it is happening, you know, continent by continent, not surprisingly, given that's how the virus has played out uh, as well. So already back to work in China and have been for some time. Uh, going back to work this week in Europe and going coming back to work in North
0: America in a couple of weeks. So when you look at that time frame, tell me how you figure out how to ramp up for that and when you should actually take off? Because obviously there's this whole debate out there about making sure that the economy is able to turn back on as quickly as possible, but also balancing that with health concerns. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate that it
3: is uh, a delicate balance in terms of the the lockdown, the shutdowns, uh, to be down long enough and sort of severely enough to flatten the curve and make sure that our healthcare system can handle what's going on. But at the same time, not being down so long as to create undue economic impact. So uh, I think we've been down for a while. We're starting to see, uh, you know, the numbers flatten off a little bit. I I know it's tough to make a call, but I think it is time to start thinking about recovery and start planning for recovery, because certainly when we do come out, the virus is still gonna be around us. So paramount number one uh, is making sure that when we come back to work that we're coming back to work safely, which is really our key focus right now. And frankly, the key focus of the entire automotive sector, which it seems to largely be the first one to come back in a lot of the economies. So a lot of work going on in terms of sharing ideas, best in practice, learning from what worked, in China and making sure that our people are as safe or safer coming to work than not coming to work. That's our goal. We want them safer, safer
0: at work. And we're putting a lot of protocols in place to make sure that that happens. What are your thoughts on what you've heard from the prime minister so far about what he's saying on when we might restart the economy? He's saying weeks and weeks more. You're saying you're planning to start ramping back up in coming weeks. Do you feel the government's moving too slowly on this? I think again,
3: it's such a, a difficult uh, situation to balance, and on one that nobody's been through before. So you know, it is tough to call. I think the good news is, with auto coming back in early May, we will, uh, as I say, we we've put a lot of work into making sure that we've got really safe back to work protocols. So I think it'll actually be a great example of how you can come back to work safely. This is how it can work, and I think it's actually going to be quite good that the auto industry is taking a first step in that regard and can show as an example, look what we're doing, this is how you can come back to work safely. So I think that that will help to build confidence and allow us to continue to climb out in other sectors as well
0: can you tell us a little bit about what your protocols are when you're talking about setting the example for coming back to work safely how will you achieve that
3: yeah absolutely so i mean key elements like uh, ppe obviously we are planning on on uh, utilizing masks for all employees for instance we feel that the evidence in china looks like uh, that was a key element uh, in terms of success so that is part of our uh, protocol uh doing screening Testing, we would love to be able to do testing, but we recognize that that's not necessarily uh, realistic given the lack of of testing. But at a minimum, we can do temperature testing uh, and screening of employees before they even come into the building to make sure they're not sick, they're not feeling sick, they haven't been exposed uh, to somebody with the virus. So, you know, trying to screen out before we even let anybody in. Uh, Obviously, distancing within the facilities, so, you know, changes are being made to make sure that people are sufficiently uh, far away. Uh, Also, uh, in terms of breaks and lunchtime that, uh, you know, staggering to make make not everybody out at the same time uh, or together at the same time, and then also making sure that they're uh, sufficiently far away. And frankly, also into sort of assigned spots. And uh, the idea behind that is tracing, right? So that we can know if somebody God forbid, does uh, get diagnosed, so we know exactly where they've been and who they've been uh, in somewhat proximity to, although, of course, we're trying to maintain that that uh, six-foot distance.
0: Now, the government has been saying that they're leaving these decisions in the hands of public health officials because they're the scientists. The opposition has been saying, well, you know, you're elected politicians. You should be the ones making the decision. Who do you think should make the decision about when businesses go back to work?
3: Well, I think, uh, I mean, to some extent, it's got to be business driven in the sense that, you know, what what is happening in terms of demand and our ability to come back safely. Uh, I think the government obviously needs to play uh, a role in that as well. But I do think that they need to listen to the public health folks and and, uh, understand what's happening in terms of the numbers and what what makes sense. So I think that we need to, to be collaborative in our approach around this, that uh, government, business, uh, public health, you know, we, we all have a voice and we can all talk together about what makes sense and then have a coordinated uh, approach to, uh, to how we get there and how we get there safely.
0: Linda, that's all the time we have, but thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for joining us. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson. Stay safe, everyone, and take care.